G'day listeners, I'm Edgar's Grester and you're listening to the Business of Biodiversity. September is Biodiversity Month, so it's a perfect opportunity to take a look at what biodiversity is and what it means to us. There are more than 1,000 threatened species in New South Wales alone. Did you know that some of our basic needs like food, energy and medicine rely on these threatened species and biodiversity? So in this episode, we'll hear from a bat-loving ecologist about how this creature's appetite could be helping protect some pretty important crops that we grow. And we'll talk to an astrophysicist about how biodiversity could be the key to life on and off this planet. I'm Dr. Matt Agnew. I'm a scientist. I've worked uh, in a, a few different, well, with a few different hats over the years. Previously, as a mechanical engineer, I guess probably more well known in the public as an astrophysicist, uh, and then more recently as a data scientist, which is um, applied artificial intelligence to solve problems. So, a few different hats, but all, all very much within the realm of science. So, with your astrophysicist hat on, talk to me about life outside planet Earth. It's an age-old question, and I understand that biodiversity can actually provide some clues to the possibility of humans living and thriving on another planet. Some of the research I did uh, as an astrophysicist around habitability and habitable planets, and there's a a particular area of uh, study, a hypothesis that was explored. There's been some scientific papers that have looked into this called the guy and bottleneck, Uh, and it has to do with the idea that biodiversity and, and life itself actually is important for creating a habitable planet so it's not just the ingredients of a planet itself but the actual uh, I guess occurrence of life and biodiversity can then also create this kind of sustainable living conditions on the planet itself so so the the work I've done in, in searching for for what would be considered habitable and I'm aware that my I've just done some air quotations there since I know this is a podcast without video um you know, the, the, the habitable planets that we're looking at are still very, very far off than what we would consider habitable in any kind of similar way to Earth. So there's, we're really far away from that. We really do only have one one place where we can, can live and it's it's of the utmost importance that we continue to really look after it with, a, with a, as I said, we're the custodians of this planet. We, we do need to take steps to maintain a healthy place for us and all the other species of life to continue to prosper. Um, if I happen to stumble across Planet B, I'll, I'll certainly let people know, but there is definitely no Planet B yet. So let's make sure we, we really do take care of this one. So we've heard it from the interplanetary expert. There's no Planet B, and we need to look after and appreciate this extraordinary place we call home and all of the unique species we're fortunate to have. And part of this is being aware of the interconnectedness of all things. Nature tends to find this really beautiful and elegant equilibrium. And we kind of are aware of that, but we we don't realise that how much having even just one small aspect of that equilibrium falling out of balance can actually have, you know, quite profound and this real ripple effect in ways that we don't even think about and, and in ways that can be really not even inconvenient, but actually quite you know significantly damaging to our way of life. So the biodiversity is really important from the point of view that we are the custodians of of this beautiful country and, and we need to look after yeah the native fauna and the biodiversity here as has been done for 50, 60,000 years by the custodians of, of Australia. And I think it's, it's really important that it's not just how does this impact us, but how does 
you know, these, this impact, the, the life that, that has been living here for so long. Um, in terms of what, what needs to be done, I think obviously the awareness is, is the, the first step. And I think that's what this, the Saving Our Species initiative has been doing so well and so significantly and highlighting those ways that, that impact people. Yeah, and I was wondering, can you paint the picture for us? Give us some examples of how these connections of threatened species and, and their survival can sometimes like surprisingly impact people in our own way of life. Absolutely. I think one of the ones that's most, probably most common or someone, or people have probably had an experience with that at some point in their lives, which is eucalyptus rubs. Eucalyptus itself, uh, obviously, is a very quintessentially Australian flora. And the fact that that could be at risk is really dangerous and really, really risky uh, with regards to having access to those eucalyptus rubs, which are really important, especially during winter months. So that's probably, I think, something that's most prolific and, and probably most widely experienced by everyone. And something as well, not as prolific, I don't think, is eucalyptus would be hazelnut spreads. But again, there's certain owls that they eat rodents, which can damage hazelnuts as well, which obviously go towards making those spreads. Something as well that I think certainly a lot of adult Australians, you know, really enjoy, which is wine and microbats, really important part of biodiversity, help to eat particular pests that can infest and damage and destroy vineyards. So that obviously is again going to be something that we don't even think about that that these biodiversity risks could have an effect on your ability to enjoy a glass of wine. So th- there's all these kind of links that we probably don't really recognise immediately about how the very broad and varied biodiversity that we have here in Australia help to protect these things that we all kind of very much enjoy to varying degrees. And without protecting our biodiversity, these kind of quite significant things can can change and impact our way of life. And it's, yeah, it's, it's often in ways that we're really unexpected. Who would have thought that microbats may be the superheroes that save the quintessential Aussie afternoon glass of wine? But it's not just grapes and vineyards that these bats are protecting. They're even partly responsible for protecting the clothes on your back. So to understand more about exactly what's happening and how these bats help protect our way of life, we spoke with Dr. Heidi Colkett, an ecologist with a passion for these cryptic creatures. I'm Heidi Colkett. I'm an ecologist with a particular focus on nocturnal and cryptic fauna, mainly bats, and I look at natural pest control services. So I undertake research, um, teach at the University of New England, and I have my own consulting company which focuses on acoustic, which is sound, analysis of bat calls and other fauna. So I'm currently involved with several projects looking at the potential pest control service provided by bats, particularly threatened bats in New South Wales wineries as part of a collaboration with DPE called the Insectivorous Bat Pest Solution Research Project. Also the bats on berry farms with Associate Professor Romina Radar here at UNE and a New South Wales um, wide citizen science project called Bats in Backyards, and that's also in collaboration with DPE. Um, I'm also currently in the middle of a really interesting project looking at how bat species composition changes post-cultural burning at several locations around the New England region. 
So as an ecologist, I'm sure there are a multitude of creatures and environments you can focus on. Why did you decide to specialise in bats? Well, I've always had a thing for wings and I used to look after injured birds um, as a kid. So I've always wanted to be a zoologist among other fancies. And after I went to uni in Tasmania, I worked in wildlife parks and zoos, both as a wildlife keeper and a reproductive biologist. And I continued on in various ecological and academic roles over the last 20 years. Um, but bats have always intrigued me because they're cryptic and nocturnal nature. And I became fascinated by sound and ecolocation. And that's ecolocation is how bats visualise and interpret the world around them. So when a PhD opportunity came up to work on bats at UNE in Armadale on cotton farms, I knew this project was for me. <laughs> That's fantastic. I actually wanted to talk about the cotton farms because in this podcast, we're actually looking at some of the hidden connections regarding biodiversity and the needs of humans. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you've been doing on this and, and how microbats are related to cotton? Yeah, so my PhD work focused on the natural pest control service provided by insect eating bats and birds in cotton crops. And um, how we how we looked at this was we caught bats over cotton crops and collected their droppings for DNA analysis. Um, and this would tell us with relative confidence what they were eating. So bats provide this service by eating insects and bats eat a lot of insects. So up to about 100% of their body weight in insects, um, female lactating and um, pregnant bats will eat each night. So this is each night. And I found that bats eat a lot of pest insects over cotton crops. They had quite a diverse diet. So they had about 728 prey species in the diet of the bat species that we looked at. And 94 of these were actually pest species and 19 were cotton specific pests. And it, what I found was really interesting that despite um, the cotton being grown in the cotton growing regions now is pretty much all BT cotton. So it's genetically modified cotton to make it less palatable to the main insect pest moth, which is Helicoverpa. We actually detected Helicoverpa moth in 86% of scat samples. So it's still there. It's still causing a problem, but the bats are doing a great job by eating it when it's available. So in effect, the bats are eating the pests that destroy cotton. And so this allows the cotton to thrive. Who would have thought that studying bat poo could help protect cotton, which makes up so much of the clothing we wear? And to work out the scale of positive impact the bats are having, Heidi took a closer look at the nightly dinner menu for the microbats. We know the Gould's Waddled Bat needs to consume each night 17 large moths, which is a helicoverpa moth, they're the pests, the baddies, or 69 small moths, 276 staphylinid sized beetles, three flies, nine bugs, and one cricket. And if we extrapolate this over the entire Eastern Australian cotton growing region, this equates to them removing about six to seven million insects per night from cotton crop interiors. And we know that more bats occur near the edges of crops. So again, this is a really um, conservative estimate because not as many bats are foraging in the middle of crops. And if we look at it in a different way, um, if we know that the bats, around 92% of a bat 
moths diet in this region are comprised of moths. This equates to three to four million moths removed or half a tonne of moths removed from cotton crops nightly across Eastern Australia. That's a lot of moths. And Heidi worked out that each Gould's Waddle microbat consumes around two female moths per night, which is important because their caterpillar babies are the ones that cause the real damage to cotton crops. So Heidi, what are the economic implications of your research? Just by consuming two reproductive female moths each night, we worked out this was a significant savings for the cotton industry. It was around $64 million a year just by eating this moth that we worked out the savings were. So the purpose of all of this is to show that the humble bat can provide such a significant economic benefit to growers and this can provide incentive to Australian landowners to promote on-farm revegetation and ecological restoration for natural pest control and they're also reducing pesticide use, which is a positive. So there's a lot of benefit to promoting these pest hunters on farm, but I get that they do have a bit of an image problem, don't they? Yeah, look, it's definitely a matter of exposure and education. A lot of people don't know that insectivorous bats exist. Um, A lot of people think that bats are bats and they're large, loud, stinky and carry diseases. And that's not really true, particularly for a lot of these insect-eating bats where they provide such a significant service to ecosystems in general and not just farmers. And Heidi says that encouraging or actively incorporating habitat for bats on and around cotton farms not only helps bats, but has broader agricultural benefits. Enhancing habitat for natural predators assists in pest suppression, particularly during pest outbreaks, and we know that. And enhancing the habitat, it doesn't just benefit bats, it benefits all biodiversity. It it benefits cattle on farms by providing shade, it benefits soil. It has a whole lot of other functions rather than just promoting um, bat biocontrol. And I think one of the most important points is that if we have increased bat functional diversity. So we've got a lot of different bats eating different things, flying in different areas. This actually improves the efficacy of natural pest control and provides a complete service where you get more things eaten rather than just one species during an outbreak, that one species of bat eating that one species of moth that it likes. Um, And this improves farm resilience, crop resilience, in the face of climate change um, and in the face of pesticides that become that don't work anymore for that targeted insect. So we need other ways to deal with um, pest outbreaks that don't rely on chemical pesticides. So it sounds like we need a biodiversity of bats to target a variety of different insects. Yeah, different species of bat consume different insects. And this is probably the most fascinating and important reason to retain and promote biodiversity. Because this comes back to echolocation and whether the bat can hear the insect emitting sound in their hearing range. For example, the threatened bat, the Saccholomus flaviventris, which is a larger bat, he's got like a low frequency call that doesn't cover much bandwidth. So they simply won't see smaller insects flying high like midges and mosquitoes. And that's why you need a variety of bats with a variety of echolocation styles And this then relates to how they forage because you can't get that complete pest control service unless you have 
a variety of insect-eating bats that eat different things. And I understand it's not just bats, of course. Birds can be super pest controllers too. Definitely. Birds also provide a significant pest control service to many crops globally. And enhancing off-crop biodiversity not only benefits bats, um, providing a pest control service, but provides habitat for insect-eating birds. So I have noted a variety of threatened birds on cotton farms and actively catching insects inside the crops. Um, And just specific common species as well, like fairy wrens, golden-headed cysticlas, magpies, barn owls, boobooks, and we've even found honeyeater nests inside the cotton because obviously if you actually nest in the cotton, you don't have to travel anywhere for food. It's right there because there's a lot of insects in cotton. So, I mean, these have been amazing finds and we also hope to move forward with other species in the wineries, the cotton and the berry farm work as well. Heidi's research has provided tangible insights into the benefits of promoting biodiversity in bat and bird species on farm. And the key to all this is supporting habitat for these pest controllers. So the majority of insectivorous bats that we worked with on cotton fields are inland on flat plains that there's no um, cave system or anything kind of nearby where large numbers can roost. So a lot of these bats are small colony tree roosting bats. Um, So hollow bearing trees, crevices, cracks, um, usually old growth. And so that's the kind of habitat that's best to retain and maintain. Through my work, I was able to show that if you manage the crop and the non-crop habitat and you enhance it within five kilometres of the crop, you will get better bat and bird pest control outcomes. And I found that there was also more bat activity near the edges of the crop. And the activity peters out at around 50 metres from the crop edge because a lot of the bat species that are present are more generalists and you get the forest clutter foraging bats in the vegetation off crop. And then you get the larger bats, particularly like a threatened um, yellow-bellied sheath cow bat. That one's more of an open flyer and he'll come right out of um, the hollow in the forests and travel over the top of crops in the open and snatch up um, insects. So, you know, if you want to get the most out of the pest control, um, long linear crops would be the best way to go and maintaining some sort of vegetation at 50 metres from the edge, whether that's like interrow spacing of vegetation or tall grasses, but just something to allow these bats that are used to foraging in closed environments um, somewhere to navigate to so they're not just out in the open and, and exposed to predators. To help landowners improve habitat for these bats, Heidi's doing some trials of nesting boxes to design the ideal habitat. In the New South Wales Wineries project, where we're looking at the pest control service of bats, that will involve putting up roosting hollows to see what bioclimatic conditions the bats prefer, because they're quite specific to heat in their roost sites. So facing the hollows um, to the north, to the south, will impact whether the bat will occupy that hollow. So we'll be looking at these kind of things and whether hollows actually do make a difference in wineries for that project, which is in collaboration with DPE and the University of New England. And normally, look, we like to promote habitat retention and plantings because even if the bats can't roost in the plantings, it provides them with a movement corridor from, let's say, old growth along a river 
and movement corridors up towards near a crop where they can provide a pest control service. So we definitely promote that, but there are areas where that's not possible. So the um, erection of boxes whilst we work out habitat configuration and maintenance and retention, that's always a possibility. There's a lot that landowners can do to promote habitat for these pest-eating bats. And whilst Heidi's research has really highlighted the benefits that bats provide, there's actually so much more they have to offer, but we haven't quite captured all the data yet. So in regards to other crops, bats absolutely provide a pest control service to other crops, but we don't know which bats are doing this in Australia and to what extent on what crops. Um, in other places worldwide we do, but not in Australia. So the suite of pest insects that bats like to eat are found on several crops. And it's highly likely that bats will be targeting pest eruptions of the grapevine moth in wineries, much like bats target helicoverpa eruptions in field crops like cotton, grains, legumes. Um, and this is what our work in New South Wales wineries and the berry farm um, work, we hope to uncover this to see what they're eating and, and if they're there. And look, we know there are threatened species that do live adjacent to these agri ecosystems and that will be eating the pests but we need to we need research to work this out and also looking at how pesticides also influence the natural pest control service of bats and yeah look I'm just looking at trying to cover all kinds of major crops in Australia and and see how we can incorporate bats and biodiversity into a farming lifestyle really. Heidi, looking into the future, what's your vision for bats and other species on farm to help with pest suppression and, and what's your message around promoting biodiversity on farm? In the future, we, we really need to focus on biodiversity on farms to improve crop resilience to insects and climate change. One study showed that yield loss to insects for the three most important grain crops, which are rice, maize and wheat, will increase by 10 to 25% per degree Celsius of warming. And that is huge. So we can increase resilience to these factors by not relying on pesticide use and instead maintaining biodiverse habitats adjacent to crops to allow a variety of pest predators to provide a more complete pest control service in the crop. And I think, yeah, the take home message is that increasing habitat for natural pest predators assist with biodiversity as a whole, the recovery of threatened species in, in a patchwork agri-ecosystem and improves the resilience of crops to pest attacks in the future. The beauty of biodiversity and the natural systems that govern it is that they just happen, most of the time without us even being aware of them. But that can also be a weakness. Like the air we breathe, we're not always thinking about the trees and plants that allow us to do this very simple but crucial act. And for astrophysicist Dr Matt Agnew, who we heard from at the start of the show, even as a scientist, he too admits to taking our natural world for granted sometimes. I think definitely the awareness thing is, is a big one for me. I mean, I must admit my own ignorance here with uh, regards to the, the biodiversity before I was much more involved in this campaign. I wasn't across all of these things. And even the number, the, the thousand threatened species was quite staggering to me. I, I had no idea it was that high. And that's how much of our own, you know, species were at risk. 
So I think the fact that I've, I've had a, a foot, obviously, in, in the science world for a number of years and granted different areas of science, but there's that transparent ability to um, understand scientific journal articles and the nuance that comes along with that. And if I had the blinkers on and had this massive blind spot, then people who don't have a foot in the world of science would also, I imagine, have the same same kinds of blind spots. So I think there's this massive awareness piece that is really important for people to understand. And I think the public needs scientific communicators and people who can help distill those important messages down into a way. And it's it's not dumbing down science. It's not making it, you know, simple or, or, or removing the important parts of it, but it's making it accessible to people and palatable in a way that's understandable without knowing, okay, I don't need 10 years of science scientific experience to understand what this take home is. This has been, you know, distilled down into a way that, okay, I get why this is important. I get what I can do and I get what I should be championing and advocating for. Sometimes information is empowering and oftentimes ignorance is bliss. So how do we walk that fine line with educating and letting people know about these issues without overwhelming them and making it all seem just too much? There are a number of, of challenges that we're facing. We've got these these more extreme weather events that are becoming more frequent. We've got obviously uh, the, all of the models showing the, the direction of the increase in, in global temperatures. Um, we've got a real problem with microplastics and nanoplastics in, in the sea life. We've got obviously bleaching and, you know, you, you rattle these things off and it, it does paint a bit of a grim picture. But I think, and I don't know if this is the engineer in me, I, I do have this kind of real optimism in that the innovative and ingenuity of humans, we are good at at solving problems and problems that have often been seen to be bigger than us or insurmountable or sometimes it might have even come across as impossible at some stages and and we've figured out ways to get around that so the engineer in me does see it as being something that i think we can solve but it's something that we we certainly can't be complacent and i think up to now we have been quite complacent and it's it's a real tragedy that we've seen quite catastrophic events taking place but i i still think that we can rein it back that we can reverse some of the changes that we can continue to look after one another and and also all the other animals that we we have a responsibility to look after as well this podcast has been produced by the grow love project with the support from the new south wales government's saving our species program To hear more episodes, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more information about the Saving Our Species program, visit savingourspecies.online slash podcast. Thanks for listening.